consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hello. Hey, girl. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> she says wearily. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to feel a little bit of the strain of the semester, although it does also feel like the semester just started. So it's going by really fast. I don't know if you feel the same way. I don't feel like it's going by particularly quickly, but I am on Mardi Gras break right now. So, oh, wow. no, her face, her face. I mean, I'm jealous. I don't know how relevant it is to the Pacific Northwest, but I definitely would be in favor of that becoming a national practice. Yeah, the when you live close to the Gulf Coast. Do you still get a whole week for spring break, though, or does that cut into your spring break? No, we get a whole week. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's just a, a blessed two days in February. Wow. Yeah. I do have to go back to work tomorrow, but I just want you to feel bad for me for that. Oh, yes. I'll cry salty tears into my pillow that your break wasn't long enough. Do you still get President's Day next week? I don't think so. No. Oh, okay. Well, I get President's Day next week. That's only one day. Three day weekend's always nice. You know how it is. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So today we are dishing about compliments. Mm-hmm. This was inspired by a experience I had, I guess it was weekend before last at this point. I did this amazing marathon of a concert that was also just so much fun. So the first half was like this overture piece I didn't play on, but then it was the Mozart Symphonia Concertant for Four Winds. So I was mm-hmm. solo bassoon and got to play with three other colleagues who I love playing with. And that, have you ever played that piece? Mm-mm. it's a big blow mm. it's like over 30 minutes and most wind can charity are not <laughs> and so you're just playing and playing the second movement bassoon part is brutal but it's really pretty 
And it's actually not, except for endurance, very high pressure at all in terms of technique or whatnot. So you kind of just get to enjoy yourself playing. Mm -hmm. And then the second half was Peter and the Wolf. And I... I'd never played Peter and the Wolf, so I, I haven't either. That needs to come back in rotation. But is it really an excerpt for y'all? Uh, not a huge one. Not like it is for bassoon or flute, no, or clarinet or mm-hmm. anyone else. Everyone <laughs> um, but, else. Everyone else. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a big. It's not the biggest excerpt for us but it's a pretty big excerpt and i'd never played it before and so i told the conductor i was like i know i'm doing a concerto but i will put on a black cardigan over my pretty dress and i will sit because i want to play (laughs) peter on the second half so i did that and uh, it went really well and it was tons of fun but uh what inspired the uh dish is that as i was standing backstage waiting to go on and the rest of the orchestra was heading on to stage to play the first piece. Uh, the concert master stopped me and gave me a very specific, very detailed, loving compliment about my playing. And mm-hmm. I don't need to go into it because it's not like, <laughs> and then she said this. No, and then I want to hear this. it. Yeah, it was just about how she was enjoying the way I was playing the Mozart and whatnot. Getting a compliment from a string player about Mozart is the ultimate compliment. It just made me think like, we need to do this. Like as colleagues, mm-hmm. we need to make sure that when we hear someone doing something that we're like, oh, that's the best. That just sounds so lovely. Like I'm a huge advocate for make it a point to go say it. Because mm-hmm. especially once you leave student life, feedback is kind of something that you have to provide on your own. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it can really make someone's day. And I feel like we've all have compliments that just stick with us that we've never forgotten. And this field can be a little bit compliment deficient at times. Yeah. And I, I wanted to have a dish where we just gave our listeners the opportunity to either prove our point by sharing a compliment that had been given to them that stuck with them as significant or shout out and give a compliment to somebody else and they came through in in droves it was fabulous but before we begin do you have a compliment that has stuck with you or that you want to extend to someone Mm -hmm. else I have both. Um, When I was an undergrad, I remember I had like a year of English horn because Luca really, really wanted me to just blow way more air. And Mm. so he, we had this really big rep year for English horn in orchestra and he put me on everything. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had to like really figure out how to play English horn and Mm -hmm. shockingly it required more air. Um, and I remember we were playing Ravel Piano Concerto and the principal flutist is still, um, but at the time was like one of my peer musicians who I deeply admired, like such Mm. a talented musician Mm -hmm. has always been and continues to be. And she turned to me and she said, your English horn playing makes me cry. And she had tears in her eyes when she said it. And that compliment has stuck with me for the last however many years. I mean, Mm -hmm. 20 years almost. Yeah. Yeah. So like the sincerity of it, Mm -hmm. it's so impactful. Absolutely. Uh, And then the compliment I'd like to give is I play a lot with Rebecca Mindock and she has the widest 
most expressive dynamic range Mm. I have ever heard an oboist do. And she does it every time. Like every time we play together, I'm like, oh, Lord, it says pianissimo. She's going to play. Like a real pianissimo, so I better figure out how to do it. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, it's so so gorgeous. So that is the compliment. So we of course took this question to our listeners, mm-hmm. and we got some really amazing responses. Um, Zach said somebody told him you're the bassoonist I want to sound like. Which shout out to Zach. Zach is a student at USM and Zach sounds fabulous. Like if I were a bassoonist, I would want to sound like Zach too. (laughs) Olivia says, I admire Andrew Parker for his exquisite playing and pedagogy. I had the amazing opportunity to study with him for two years for my master's degree. And I'm so grateful for all the wisdom, laughs and music we shared. That's Andrew Parker, UT Andrew Parker, although Mm -hmm. both are wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I agree. Uh, I remember uh, hearing Andrew Parker at the University of Iowa when I was a student. That was his first position. And when he plays the oboe, angels fly out of the bell. It's beautiful playing. (laughs) Emily said, Chris Millard told me he wanted my read. It sounded so sweet. Oh, I got a read compliment from Judy LeClaire. Now, I think decades ago that I've never forgotten. That was like, sometimes like when you're having a bad day, it's just like you remember like, oh, Judy LeClaire told me I had a perfect read. So (laughs) (laughs) things can't be going that bad. Uh, friend of the podcast, Rachel Becker said, I got an amazing compliment about the feeling of freedom in my playing and to pay it forward. I dream of sounding like Miriam Hanika on oboe and English horn. Mm, That's beautiful. Rhett says, uh, the compliment that he received was your English horn solo in Dvorak nine was so beautiful. I want you to play it at my funeral. Oh God. (laughs) <laughs> didn't we have a dish a while back of like music to die to why did we have that dish that, i don't think that this made the cut at the time but but also in retrospect why would we dish about that what a couple of weirdos like why did we do that ted Solari said someone once told me i was the Pavarotti of the bassoon and two hearts because even when you're the principal bassoon in the dallas symphony orchestra compliments mean a lot and we all need to hear them right they do oh mariah said once one of my oboist colleagues turned around after rehearsal and said mariah if there was an intonation olympics you would win oh gold medal in the intonation Chrissy Keen anderson the student who had her lesson after mine told me my read sounded good today and UGA Oboes, you are the best humans, and I'm so proud of all of you and grateful that I get to be a part of such an amazing studio. We love the studio, love. Jillian says, a long time ago, a harpist said to me, you make me not hate the oboe anymore. Uh, thank you. <laughs> also, a long time ago, a violinist said to me, so that's how English horn is supposed to sound. <laughs> you make me not hate the oboe anymore. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Sarah says, in undergrad, while rehearsing with one of the wind ensembles, our director was taking us through each section of the piece, detailing what he wanted to do musically with each phrase, especially the solos. 
We got to the section with the big exposed English horn feature, and our director said, Sarah, I trust your musical decisions. Why don't you just play through it for us, and we'll sit back and enjoy. Lovely. What a lovely compliment. All right. Maybe one more? Perfect. Joanna says, I worked with an accompanist who told me I sounded like warm caramel. That one sticks with me. (laughs) I love it. So can we just all make it a point to pay it forward and give a compliment sometime this week? Find someone doing good and tell them how amazing they are. Because you don't know the difference it will make in someone's day. Yeah, maybe they'll remember it 20 years later. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Ari Cohen Mann, instructor of oboe at Wilfrid Laurier University. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. It is our pleasure. And we would love to start to get to know you and your story with our standard first question, which is, how did you begin to play the oboe? The oboe is kind of an interesting instrument, you know, we all play it. It's just uh, sort of more obscure. And I ended up finding it in elementary school band, um, totally not knowing what it was because there was someone else who like had played it. I was like signed up for band by accident in the first place. My family had just like emigrated from the Netherlands to Canada when I was like 12. And yeah, I thought I was going to be playing like bass guitar and like, you know, have like a like a real band, you know, like, like the, like a rock band. Uh, and it was very far from that. Um, but we played like a Harry Potter medley and there was, um, a girl who played the oboe and she sounded incredible actually. Like she had lessons and everything. So I was like, Oh, this is a cool instrument. Like I want to play that. And I was playing the flute, uh, because my dad had played it and, uh, yeah, I, I heard that really cool sound. I was like, I want to do that. And, um, yeah, about a year later, I started on the oboe and I had like a wonderful mentor in um, a graduating student from my high school, Katrina Bly, um, who is an incredible oboist and plays in the Naden band or recently um, left the Naden band to do other uh, army related, uh, Canadian forces related work. Um, but yeah, I was gl- glad to have a teacher right away and that sort of steered me on the on the music path. 
What made you decide to become a professional musician? Did you have an aha moment or was it sort of gradual? I think it w- it came very quickly, but then sort of slowly afterwards, like built up more and more. So I think my aha moment was in grade 10, they asked us to do these job shadow projects. At that point, I was studying with Roger Cole, the former principal oboist of the Vancouver Symphony. And um, he played along and answered my questions and took me to a symphony rehearsal. And so I got to sit on stage when they were rehearsing Firebird Suite. And um, when the Infernal Dance started playing, I was like, oh, this is it. Like, you know, this is the most fun thing ever. And so much energy and so much color and like the whole orchestra is just like rocking, um, you know, kind of that rock band feeling that I was looking for, mm-hmm. you know, when I started. And um, yeah. And then I sort of, it felt a bit like a, a pipe dream and wasn't sure if there was something that I was going to actually be able to do. I think I had a lot of family pressure to uh, pursue something in the sciences, you know, the standard Jewish, you know, doctor, lawyer kind of thing. <laughs> um so I um, decided to, so I managed to convince myself that this was like a worthy pursuit and that I was someone who could do this. And then um, started out as a double major with computer science in my undergrad. And um, yeah, it took a while, but eventually I got my parents on board and they were okay with me uh, pursuing music full time. Can we hear about um, your training and educational journey and what informed your choices of uh, where to study and that type of thing? Yeah. So going into university, I just played oboe for just over like three years or so. Uh, So I didn't have um, a ton of exposure to like American schools or anything like that. So I had only I'd only applied to University of British Columbia and the University of Victoria, uh, which were both local and drivable. Uh, so we went there. Um, my parents came and joined me on campus for the audition days. And uh, yeah, I ended up at UBC, uh, where I studied with uh, the late, great Beth Orson. Um, so much love to uh, my former mentor and teacher. And um she really uh, inspired me a lot and she said, you know, you could do this. There's room at the top. Like if you're really good and you work really hard, people will want to play with you. And um, if you're a good colleague and, you know, you make people feel good and feel happy and, you know, um, included. So that's what I strove to do. And I'm very grateful that she encouraged me to continue in performance and, um, yeah, after I finished at UBC, I uh, I was just dead set on moving to New York City. I like we went there. I went there in high school, and I just like loved all the skyscrapers and just like there's just so much going on, and of course Broadway is there. So um, yeah, I, I I would never advise this to anyone, but I only applied to the like three New York City conservatories. And, um, yeah, I'm like lucky that I even got in anywhere, but no, it was great. And, um, I ended up doing my master's at Manus, uh, with Sherry Seiler. And then after that, I just wanted a little bit more school. And, uh, so I, um, did my artist diploma at Yale 
uh, with Steve Taylor. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences in teaching style between, you know, all of your various influences and what you grabbed onto the most? Yeah, of course. Um, and in addition to these people, like there were so many other people that I got to work with and uh, study with at various like summer festivals and stuff. So there's just so many influences that have like are in my little voices in my head, oboe voices um, with like sage wisdom and advice. And um, I really think that I'm a total mishmash of different schools of thought within oboe. And um, I've always just had the approach of like, I'm going to try to figure out what works for me and like take the best from everyone that I encounter. Um, so like very early on, I went to like Maristone Music Festival and Becky Henderson was uh, the oboe teacher uh, the year that I was there. And she taught me so much uh, about, you know, like voicing and how to, um, you know, make a make a nice sound, you know, which like is really complicated and unintuitive uh, and different from a lot of other instruments. Her sound was like you could feel it vibrate in your own face the way absolutely. that she was listening. <laughs> absolutely yeah if she wasn't playing in the same room as you your own face would vibrate from the sound. you can feel it just at the bridge of your nose yes <laughs> totally um yeah um beth my undergrad teacher was just very methodical um, it was so great to just explore. We we did a lot of Barrett's, a little lot of Barrett melodies, a lot of Barrett articulation studies, and just learning how to phrase and how to build a setup that was good. Um, and then I had a great summer working with both Elaine Duvas and Richard Kilmer at like Hidden Valley and the Banff Um center uh which no longer has they used to have these master right. classes and it was like a three week long thing uh i think it was three weeks long uh working yeah with... i did it i did it yeah. with kilmer yeah too. i did probably yeah. did it way earlier than you did and i yeah. also did marrowstone with becky henderson oh my god all these i things... think we're the same <laughs> yeah little parallels i love that um, but those those summers were like humongously influential in like oh, yeah. how how I play because like you just are immersed in like having this teacher around you like teaching you both like one on one but also in the masterclass setting and getting to hear how they teach other people and seeing you know feeling validated of course when they like pick on the same things that you think they should pick on <laughs> but um be, like learning a lot and having like eye-opening experiences seeing how they they approach teaching and what they will comment on what they decide is their like number one priority or something that can be solved during a master class period you know which is, sometimes is 15 or 20 minutes right and usually we really want in that very small time frame to give something very concrete to the student that they can walk away from and like be like oh i i learned something today you know okay. um and then sherry was really intense she was great i love her so much she was 
I really like uh, strict with technique. Like uh, we did so much, so many scales, um, chromatic scales in like thirds and fourths and fifths, like all in different rhythms and, and triplets and quintuplets. And I was, it was hard. I, I was sort of in this like uh, mindset that oboists didn't really need to have the same technique as flutes and clarinets because our music is a little bit easier or something. Uh, of course, it's totally delusional. Like, for, like making reads is not a good enough excuse to like not be able to play technical things at a high level. Um, so uh, that was really great for like a great wake up call. Um, you know, we, we did, um, the studio classes there were incredible. I, I feel like I learned so much from every single studio class, like, and, you know, Sherry sharing her experiences, um, of being in the New York Philharmonic for just all those years mm -hmm. and all the crazy things that she had to like jump into performances with like no rehearsal. And that happened while I was a student there, like many times. Uh, she's like, oh, okay, it's just the very last performance of like pictures at an exhibition. And tonight I get to play, <laughs> you know, um, they've already done three or four performances and however many rehearsals. And um, yeah, she really had just like iron nerves, you know, like just or nerves of steel. That's what they call it. <laughs> Do you think um, that's because her technique is so solid? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, yeah, her teacher, she did her undergrad at Indiana University, was very, very uh, big on scales ad infinitum, you know, and uh, she really brought that into her own teaching. Um, we focused a lot on fairlings and the grand etudes. And really, she was strict about getting them fast and like perfect and clean and there were many times where i had to like bring an etude back uh multiple weeks mm -hmm. and she was like okay this is good and now let's play it at the printed tempo i'm like okay <laughs> all right okay well, yeah i'll bring it back i'll work harder and um and we got through a lot of music uh she wanted to hear new solo repertoire in each lesson pretty much so we didn't bring a lot of stuff like back in and we also had amazing read classes there uh with ryan walsh at the time and um he's an incredible incredible read maker and uh, i know that uh he's a friend of the pod <laughs> he was my and... first boyfriend <laughs> yes he's my junior high boyfriend ryan walsh shout out ryan <laughs> Shout out, Ryan. <laughs> um, yeah, we would have like read classes every week and like timed read drills every week. And it was just an amazing environment to be able to learn from him. Such a consistent read maker, like how, how he does it. Um, yeah. And then Steve Taylor um, was a little bit different. He is like very hands off like kind of lets you just follow your own passion, whatever that is. And so we had six people in the studio all sort of just doing their own thing. Um, 
he helped me a lot. I was preparing for the Montreal Symphony um, solo competition that they have. That it's like every three years, it's like a woodwind brass percussion year. I think things changed a little bit with the pandemic. I don't know exactly how it works now. Um, but that was a humongous list that I had to prepare uh, for like the prelims, semis, and the finals. And um, I did not make it to the finals, but I was very, very happy to to be in the semis and to be able to present a recital that I was proud of. And I was the on, only oboist that year in the semifinals. They rarely take more than one to that round. So it was a really cool opportunity. And he was like the perfect person to like help coach me through like all of this solo music because um, he's played it all and he has amazing ideas uh, about phrasing and just being you really pushed my creativity um in in a way that like i had not really gone to not gone to that level before so did we hear about embarking on your professional journey and how you got to where you are today of course yeah so after finishing up at yale i knew that i couldn't really stay in new haven because there's not really a lot of stuff going on there um there's like the symphony and then there's the harford symphony but they rarely ever needed subs and all this kind of thing so um i saw how my friends in new york were doing after a couple of years of being out of their masters and i was like oh no because they're all like living in like four people to a <laughs> two-bedroom apartment and you know it's tough like I don't know. So Toronto at the time seemed like a very sensible option where like I hadn't lived here before, but there's tons of orchestras um, along the 401 sort of known as like the you know, 401 Philharmonic uh, sort of a, a joke of all the freelancers that go all the way from like Windsor to Ottawa. And um, in addition to that, it's like, a fun queer friendly city, big city, lots of stuff going on. So I, I really wanted to, uh, to move here. Uh, I'd really liked in the times that I'd visited and sort of set up shop. So once I landed in Toronto, I basically started playing mock auditions for people that helped prepare me for taking real orchestral auditions. But also in that time, they were able to hear me sort of at my most prepared and that really helped with um, starting to get gigs and um, being recommended for stuff. Um, so, you know, I always say with anyone who asks me for advice on freelancing, I'm like, play mock auditions and then always put your best foot forward, right? You're just like every gig, if you, you know, play your heart out and you do the best job that you possibly can. Hopefully someone will hear you at that gig and recommend you for another one. Um, yeah, and for sure, the Yale brand took me far. I think there were a lot of people that were willing to put their trust in me uh, because I'd gone to a fancy brand name school. Um, but I think like staying and still being asked and all that kind of stuff um, is just like doing the best job I can. And, you know, Kilmer had this amazing... Uh, viewpoint that's like you'd ask us what's the most important concert that you've ever played and it's like it's the one you're playing right now you know and always um you know trying to sound as beautiful as you can and 
um, and then being a good colleague and, you know, making like being a good uh, support to whoever is playing principal and um, just, you know, being someone who people like being around. Can you tell us about the genesis of your amazing YouTube channel, Oboari? Of course. Yeah. So that was a fun little project. Uh, it's still ongoing, but I definitely have dwindled down in terms of the production uh, side of it, just because it has been really, really busy. Um, but I started it as a pandemic project. I was... Um, pretty bored I think as many of us were at the start of the pandemic and I sort of thought that not a lot of people were doing this kind of thing like I know uh, my good friend uh, Danny Cruz uh, was putting out some YouTube videos oboe files and then uh, of course Jeanette Ingle had like some great read making videos out there but there wasn't too much outside of that and so I kind of figured that would be something cool to do and it would help people um especially on the tutorial side of things because i think it's hard to always have access to like high quality oboe instruction and um yeah so i i started my first one was the mozart oboe concerto tutorial where i sort of talk about how to prepare the exposition of the mozart uh concerto for someone who had never played it before and it was kind of a hit and I got really good feedback from it and just made more and more and kind of it grew naturally from there. I think a lot of people, you know, it was entertaining enough, you know, I like tried to be like funny and, you know, upbeat and I think people connected with that. So yeah, it was fun and hopefully I'll get out a few more videos this year. Um, I have, I have ideas. It's just like about, you know, carving out the time now to, to like sit down and film it and then edit it later. And I know, you know, from like your own editing processes that sometimes that can be very time consuming. Video is really different though. I'm very good friends with Aaron Oft, who's kind of the bassoon uh, equivalent. And I've seen her uh, you know, record videos and it's the, the, the focus and the ring light and the this and the, that like stuff that we don't, I really have to deal with. Um, and it is like a whole other, um, skill really to, to not only the production aspect, but the creating content and then also, um, advertising it and, and get gaining a following and, and getting eyes on it. And so uh, I have a couple of follow-ups actually about your YouTube channel, but I wonder if we could start with just kind of that learning curve. And it's such a uniquely like now skill that none of totally. us were given, you know, we just kind of right. watch and see how we could apply it to classical music. So talk to us about that experience. Yeah, it was definitely a steep learning curve. Um, so I started out with, doing just like mostly Instagram stuff before that. So I did like the 40 days of Barrett challenge that a lot of people at that time were doing, you know, like Mary Lynch was doing it. And um, uh, some uh, Zach Boning, I think he was doing it at the time. And it was super weird. Cause like I played the 16th Barrett melody and for some reason it went like just like a little teeny tiny bit viral. And I was like, I don't understand. What? Why? 
and could I be an oboe influencer now? You know, <laughs> like um, it was it was just like, you know, what? I think we get a little dopamine hit with like all the likes and stuff. Um, and, you know, I definitely feel like I have like, uh, you know, good intentions with it and whatever. But I'm not going to lie that when that video went like just like a, a little bit got a little bit popular, I was like, OK, all right, like, let's see what we can do from this. I kind of like this feeling. And um, started trying to watch YouTube videos about like social media content creation. Um, I read some books. Uh, uh, definitely some of the books that I read, you know, by now are completely outdated. You know, like that's the thing. It's like this was 2020 and things move really, really quickly. So mm -hmm. it, it is even a, a challenge to to teach a class about like digital content creation because the formats change, you know, the, the branding changes, like my branding, maybe a little bit less, but like for sure, like the way that you want to like optimize the videos and whatever hashtags you want to use and how many hashtags to use and what should the length of your video be and like all these sort of things you really need to optimize if you want to gain traction on like TikTok, which right now TikTok is sort of the biggest platform and is kind of the best place for really quick growth. Mm -hmm. Um and like I'm not like a big TikTok person whatsoever. Like do not use that. I barely open TikTok and when it is it's like I got like a, a few little uh TikToks that my friend Sophie sends me. So I'm like, okay, open my inbox. Let's see what are the funny things that she sent me. But um, I, I don't really use it professionally at, at all. Um, but that's sort of where the most popular content lives right now is these like shorter uh, videos. Um, and then Instagram reels would be sort of the same thing or YouTube shorts, sort of similar. Um. But I think for me, YouTube videos really are the, the content that I'm most passionate about and are mostly the ones that I've focused on. And, you know, it's important to like recognize where your voice kind of lives. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, there's a lot of trial and error. Um but I definitely did a lot of learning. I actually like put together like a little social media course to help other musicians uh, do the same thing that I did over Zoom for like a couple of cohorts. Um, yeah. And some of them are like doing really well still. They're like posting all the time. I'm like, you did it. Good. I'm glad this helped. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I always want to be doing more and engaging more internationally uh, than than I really have the time for. Mm -hmm. Well, and once, so kind of my second follow-up is once you have a platform, deciding what you want to use it for and the um, types of ideas you want to amplify. Um, so I wonder if you could talk to us about that and some specific things I'm interested in. You've kind of already referenced 
accessibility with um, the tutorials. I know several of your videos address um, price points and maybe where financially certain things are investing in um, and uh, debunking certain myths or whatever, you know. And um, also you have um, created opportunities to engage with popular music on your channel. And you've also um, collaborated with drag queens and asserted your queer identity. And so it's a it's a big question, but essentially, you know, de determining what you want to platform and, and um, maybe even if you have specific videos you'd like to shout out or point our listeners to that is representative of this content. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for watching my videos. I really appreciate it. I feel like you you, you know you know a lot of them. Um, yeah. So um, it it is a big question, and it sort of comes down to like my personal mission, um, which basically boils down to helping like young musicians believe in themselves and the, believe in the power of like hard work and being able to um you know practice your way to the top um and the um other part of that is um trying to be a role model as much as i can for um young lgbtq plus kids um you know when i say kids i mean you know youths any any sort of people who are finding themselves still and i think you know i only found you know parts of myself a lot later in life and i think a big part of that is not really having that representation and seeing like what non-binary could look like in this world right and so i think being out there and being someone who embodies that and um you know for a lot of this kind of stuff there's no rule book there's no etiquette book on like how to be non-binary and I think you know just um trying to be an example of you know one of many hopefully of uh, just people that are navigating this world um in our own way have you gotten feedback from people who have found you and said wow this is everything that I have been looking for this is so validating Absolutely. It's really meant the world to me to to get those kind of messages. I've gotten quite a few of like people that are not out of the closet yet and like hope to be and see that like it's possible to like have a career and be out. I think that um, there's so much stigma still out there in especially in certain parts of the world um, and seeing the the, you know, that I am doing it and I'm a professional and I'm queer and I'm not binary and just living every day, you know, as honestly as I can. I think that that does, um, it does inspire people and I'm really grateful to, to have heard from some of them and I'm sure some of them I haven't heard from, uh, but they're still being able to benefit from that. It's such a, it's such an amazing thing. Like, it's a scary thing to put yourself out there like that. Um, and it's a vulnerable thing, but I could imagine that it would be incredibly impactful and helpful for young queer non-binary people 
I mean, I remember when I was coming out, I reached out to a mentor in the field who, uh, you know, I emailed her and I was like, oh, is this gonna, is this gonna ruin my life? And she was like, no. <laughs> right. But that fear is real. It's very real. It's very real. And I remember just being so overwhelmed by all of it that even the thought that it could happen was so like terrifying. Absolutely. So to have you out there, you know, saying, hey, it's great. Not only is it okay, it's great. Yeah. Like that's, that's such a powerful thing. I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Related, can we hear about the intersection of drag and oboe playing? Yes, I think there's going to be more. Um, I I did drag a lot uh, when I was in school. And um, in New Haven, actually, I hosted New Haven Pride 2015. It was like a great, it was a great party. And I used to do like monthly shows at like Partners Cafe in New Haven and... Um, yeah, that was something that was like really important to me at the time um, to, to like, express my gender identity and to like, you know, like just starting to do drag, like helped me learn so much about myself. Um, and when I moved to Toronto, I sort of had uh, like way less time to, to do anything um, of that of that sort and I sort of like put all my drag away in like this little box and I was like I'll come back it's you know I'm not throwing any of the stuff away um, but I'm not sure at what frequency I'll be able to to get into drag because I'm like really focusing on you know trying to build a career and uh, a lot of times you know drag shows happen the same nights that uh, classical music concerts happen you know mm -hmm. so um there's just a, a challenge there. But I do think there's a lot more things happening here now than there were even when I moved here like seven or eight years ago. Um, but I think that like now that drag queens have sort of entered the mainstream like consciousness as something that are so like reviled and hated by the right kind of makes me want to do drag more <laughs> and like return to it and do it more often. The most recent time I got in drag was actually for a protest uh, that was happening here in Toronto in Queens Park. There were these, uh, this like horrid right wing group that was um, protesting, uh, basically like students learning about the existence of queer people in the sex ed curriculum, and uh, so how scandalous! Uh, I know it's so ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. Um, oh, you know. Um, so I was out there and protesting, and it was always oh, fun. And I was with like my people, and I saw some people who like had their crazy signs and had their own thoughts. And um, but the, the queers we mobilized, we showed up, and and we were there. Switching gears a little bit. I would love to ask you about hidden gems for the oboe repertoire. I have a feeling that you've got some good ones for us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, okay. So um, some works that, okay. So a work right now that I'm working on for a recital in February is um, by composer Lee Gannon, 
who is like not very well known was like Rochester based and um he wrote a couple of good oboe pieces so one of them is the sonata and another one is uh, meditation and scherzo which was actually written for someone's like master's recital so it's like a great recital piece like it's like perfect to like showcase some beautiful soft expressive lyrical playing and then some like really fun um little scherzo music um he was a very um he was like part of the like AIDS generation of gays and um he didn't die from AIDS but he died like around that time in a car accident um so he he died quite young but he lost a lot of friends um to to AIDS and um a lot of that kind of uh pathos and pain really comes out in in his uh writing and then um I know everyone like loves Ruth Gibson knows about her, but nobody is playing her sonatas. Like her sonatas are really fun. She has two. And the second one is like, especially cool. Um, so go out and learn the Ruth Gibson sonata. And also, okay. So this was, this is not oboe, but, um, I wanted to do a little shout out to John Cage. Okay. Did you know John Cage was gay? I did not know, I did that. know that. I think I did, but yeah. Okay, so like nobody. Okay, when I ask this to to other musicians, a lot of times people don't know that John Cage was like very out proud gay, and um, I think, uh, you know, mostly people know John Cage for four minutes and thirty three seconds, which is like fine and it's a cool piece and it's like very novel and it's you know very unique. But um, he's written a lot of other cool things and also. A very accomplished visual artist. I actually saw a bunch of his like multimedia sort of visual art at like the Whitney Museum in New York a few years ago. And that sort of turned me on to thinking that this man was more than just writing about writing a piece of silence. Uh, that's a pretty much, I think, a footnote in a music history survey course that I did. Right. And then. Yeah, he has really cool works. And if I can recommend one in particular, it would be um, The Seasons. It's a, it's a ballet work from 1947 and has some really nice double read stuff. Um, go check it out. There's like Amazing. recordings on the streaming places. Are you familiar with the works of Julius Eastman? The name rings a bell, but I don't think I know... I wouldn't be able to like say any pieces. No, I think you'd be very interested in his artwork. Uh, he's um, minimalist, um, but because he was black and gay and asserted both his racial and sexual identity, specifically utilizing titles of works um, that would uh, reclaim uh, terminology that uh, had been weaponized against these populations. Um, even people can get a little cagey about programming him now. But um, yeah. yeah, I think you. Yeah, I think you would really enjoy checking him out and, and yeah, his works. Thank you for the recommendation. Appreciate yeah. it. So it's a double read podcast, and so we like to get into the nitty gritty about read making. 
I want to start with a question that may be truly stupid and then segue <laughs> into a more standard question. So as you were talking about your training, it came to my mind, and maybe this is just because I'm a bassoonist, but I, obviously the thing I know about oboe reeds is this divide between the European style and the American style, which of course the epicenter of is in Philadelphia. And so we assume the United States. Do Canadians play long scrape reeds or is it, is both represented? Like, is that even a thing? Is that a dumb question to ask? It's in fact, not a dumb question whatsoever. Oh, uh, hooray. Because, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Almost exclusively um, in Ontario and further west, we do play on like American, so to so to speak, like American style reads. And in Quebec, uh, there's actually a mix. Uh, so a lot of people play uh, short scrape reads, like you know Quebec City in particular. And in Montreal itself, it's like a fifty-fifty split. So you'll see both, and you'll see like there'll be people at a gig where one person is playing american style and one person is playing like european style oh wow that's so cool so if people leave canada to study does it tend to go along those lines like people who play long scrape reads study in the states and people who play short scrape reads study in europe yeah not exclusively but i i do think that 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 would be the trend yeah okay all right. Now I would like to hear about your reads. Uh, mm -hmm. Our listeners love to hear about the geeky stuff, like the machines and tips that you use, your approach to habits and uh, yeah, all that good nerdy stuff. Read advice. For sure. Okay. So I'm actually really excited about this. So I bought a shaping machine and I'm a little obsessed with it. Um, yeah, hand shaping is so 2023. Shaping <laughs> machine 2024. Um, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot be bothered with hand shaping anymore. It's way too much work. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Like maybe I wasted all this money on like quite an expensive machine, but I think quality of life, it's worth it. I hope it'll last my whole career. Um, yeah, and I just have, um, a couple of shapes. I have one for English horn and then I have like the Mac plus plus shape, shape or form, I should say for this machine. And that is a little bit different than there are like multiple versions floating around of Mac plus plus like traditional hand shapes. Um, yeah, but it's an amazing shape and I love it. And it's like perfect for me right now on my instrument. I, I think Elaine Duvas said, she's like, you think you'll have your reads all figured out, but then the oboes will change. You're like, whatever is like on the market for oboes is going to dictate what your read making style will be. And I definitely think there's truth in that. I have switched a few times. Like I used to play Loray and then in 2014, I switched to a Howarth XL, which I played as my main instrument for about seven or eight years. And I got the uh, Howarth Alex V VT, which is what I play on now. And yeah, all those oboes are quite different and learning how to make reads for that instrument is, um, a, a unique challenge. Um, and, uh, I don't look forward to, you know, 
six to eight years from now when I switch oboes again to mm-hmm. have to relearn how to make reeds. But, um, you know, it's just part of the ongoing learning, which we kind of have to embrace in our, in our field. Um, okay, what else? So I use, what staples do I use? Kiruji 47 millimeters, two plus brass. Not the um, hollow kind or whatever, the, the kind that have cork on them. Mm. And then I tie at 72 and I measure my reads while I scrape. Uh, I know actually I make my reads a little bit differently from anyone who I've actually studied with because I sort of figured out this way to do them really fast. Um, so what I, what I do is I scrape the heart first and I scrape it down with a micrometer evenly to like 45, like so 0.45 of a millimeter just like throughout the entire heart. And then I put in the back just like eight little uh, scrapes on each side of um, each quadrant. And then I'll put in the tip last and um i don't put in like the transition until like the next day of scraping um but yeah i've just like this sort of has really worked for me and using the micrometer to measure the heart has helped me a lot in terms of the consistency of it i think other oboists that i've like made reads with you know like we have our little read making kiki kind of hangouts um, people will be like, oh, I think you have like a thick spot in the heart or something like that. And I'm like, I cannot see that. I cannot see that with my eyes. So I think having um, a micrometer that I use very consistently, at least for the heart, but definitely if I'm having trouble with finishing the read, I'll use it on the tip as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just helps so much with like balancing the read um and just it brought a lot of consistency to my reads which is uh really what i need what do you have coming up next and uh tell us where we can find you on the internet yeah so up next is february 24th laurier is having a big double read day bash uh we're very very excited um so kathy mclean is our new bassoon instructor and we have two guests coming in um from the university of michigan so we have jeff lyman and we have nancy ambrose king uh so we're gonna have a really big fun party uh we're all gonna give classes and have a fun little concert in the evening so i'm really really excited if you're anywhere near the kitchener waterloo area or feel like driving please come it's gonna be really fun and in terms of where you can find me, um, I'm pretty consistently at Oboari, so O-B-O-E-A-R-I. And that's going to be on Instagram and YouTube and my website, oboari.com. Before we close, can we hear your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career at, like yours? So I have a little bit of what's now, I think, known as a portfolio career. I think that's like the nice way to stay freelancing where I teach at a university and I also um, have like a very varied sort of freelance uh, playing career where I do everything from recitals to, you know, going out there and doing master classes and then doing like orchestral kind of work. 
And I think my advice to young people would be to really follow, follow your passion and, and within music, follow your passion. So like, don't let that limit you to, you know, one prescribed career path. I certainly did not think that this is what my career would look like when I was like 18 to 22. Um, it's evolved into this like naturally where I feel like I have a really fun balance of things that I really enjoy doing. And luckily I can like pay my rent with. Um, so just like really explore like what you're into and, and, and follow that. And then I think the next thing is to have grit. Um, so grit is just like the perseverance of like when things are not going the way that you had hoped or things are challenging or things are hard that you just like keep, keep on keeping on. Um, there, there are going to be really hard parts of, of having a career in music. Um, and I think it's not talked about enough, but there's times where, you know, with freelancing, it's like feast and famine. Like there's going to be times where you're going to have a gig every week. And then there's going to be like a few weeks where you're like, Oh no, like has the world forgotten about me or um, just like things not progressing in the way you envisioned or like having an audition where you don't advance or whatever. Right. And you're going to be disappointed for sure. And having the grit to like, you know, forget about your failures and, uh, you know, marinate in your successes so that you can like make it through until, you know, the next like fun thing that you do that will remind you that you're in the right place at the right time. All right. This has been such a wonderful, fortifying conversation. Thank you so much for generously spending this time with us on Double Read Dish. Of course, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that interview and that you are just, you know, having the most wonderful day and <laughs> that you will rate and review on Apple podcast and uh, follow us on social media. We love to connect with you and we can't wait to bring you our next episode. Glee, who will be featured on that next episode? On the next episode, we have a wonderful conversation with Dave Wells, assistant professor of bassoon at Appalachian state university. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go give compliments. Oh yeah. I like it.